it's fine. Okay, here we go. All right. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird thing to sort of get used to that. Yes, yes. And I find that it's really more comfortable for me just not to watch. Yes, but don't watch it. Yeah, but there (laughs) is that element of like, you can watch it so you can see how you can improve. It's yeah. like listening to how often you say, um, or something. Yes. Like that. Yeah. Yes. That's what I tried to use it as is as cringe worthy as it is for mm-hmm. me to see those things. I realized that I was fidgeting a lot and it was very clear and I was uncomfortable. And I don't know if it was about being uncomfortable in my skin, but I think in general, I'm not comfortable being filmed doing almost anything. So this is so ironic that I have launched into this new direction where I'm on a lot of video recorded things, some of which I've Uh, never watched either. (laughs) So I don't even know what I said, uh, particularly on some of them, but here we are. I can relate to that so much. And I, so hello everybody. If you're joining us, I'm, uh, we're here live on YouTube, Christine and myself to have a little chat with you this morning. Yes. And I'm so happy to see you again. Every time we talk, it's really fun. Yes. And we're just sort of chatting about how the, the experience of this video project that we've both been engaged in. And I, I also feel really uncomfortable with it. And this started for me when I was in graduate school and we were doing a lot of these online because I was in an online program for the last part of it. We would have to record ourselves doing our sessions and then you'd have to, you couldn't get away from watching it because the whole point was to watch and critique. Yes. And I thought I'm, this is so uncomfortable for me to, um, to watch myself back and feel so self-critical and self-conscious. Yes. And so now doing a bunch of YouTube videos, it's like, what the heck am I doing? (laughs) It's uh, yeah, it's a little torturous. Uh, Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what that's about. And it's interesting because I was just talking to John, who's my partner um, and we're supposed to be getting married here in a couple months and I don't even have a dress. Um, And (laughs) the saga of the dress continues. Oh no. Launching into, you know, I'm sure it's very, very little interest in my personal life here at all, but <laughs> I think there's sometimes, and, and I guess this kind of connects to there's, there's sometimes I think a belief that as therapists or people that are very involved in, you know, as a professor, even that I have a level of maybe confidence or, um, you know, I don't know, feeling as though I'm this expert, I have a lot of imposter syndrome. So, and I think that's fairly common in this industry. Cause I, and maybe we've talked about this before, but there's not a lot of measurable outcomes. You know, your measurable outcome is basically, did your student learn something? Did your client notice anything that was an improvement on their own well being? which very rarely as a therapist, you get credit for anyhow, it's really them Mm. kind of discovering that in themselves and you know, I used to tell my students, you're not going to hear the word thank you a lot. So if you're doing this to get a whole lot of thank yous for changing my life, that's not usually how it works. Cause that's, you know, that kind of change is kind of artificial. Anyhow, Yeah, the mm-hmm. deeper, you know, core of us changes in a much more profound way over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. And it's not measurable. The one thing a psych, uh, a therapist or a psychologist 
um, said to you or didn't say to you. Usually mm -hmm. it's a compilation of experience with maybe some self-awareness and insight. There's all these pieces of this puzzle. So you never really know where the work is going. And I think that's something that when I would talk to my students, I would say, don't expect a thank you. And mm -hmm. it wasn't about making them not feel good about the work. It was about knowing that oftentimes long-term change, they're not going to pinpoint it on one particular thing. This, this whole idea of like, I had an epiphany and my whole life changed. That's mm -hmm. great. And I'm sure it happens for people, but I can't tell you the number of epiphanies I've had that have changed my whole life, so to speak that I didn't act on right away. Mm -hmm. So even that was something that, you know, I, I, I put in the, 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 in the compartment, I would say of my mind, right. Mm -hmm. the, the, up, up there in the, the shelves. So, um, I can't attribute a whole lot necessarily. I know that therapy helped me quite a bit in making better relationship choices, but I cannot say there was one particular thing or moment and I credit myself for going to therapy mm -hmm. and myself for doing the work, not my therapist, even though he had such a significant, profound influence on me. So mm -hmm. in that regard, I think as a therapist, as a professor, the, the measure of how impactful your work is, is very difficult. And it's not based on, you know, any kind of real meaningful, you know, you use these rubrics in cognitive behavioral therapy to say that you, your goal is to, you know, feel, I don't know, you know, when I was an intern, it was like, you know, I feel depressed six times a day. So I want to move it down to, I feel depressed four times a day. And then I want to feel yeah. depressed. Yeah. So it was, that's artificial in a sense. Anyhow, it's not really how depression works. And, um, any, anyhow, so I, I just in thinking about all, all of that, I go into sort of this profession mm -hmm. where the results are not measurable mm -hmm. and that just sort of furthers this imposter syndrome narrative. And I think that's where I was going with that is it's easy to just say, well, what do I, what do I, you know, what the hell do I know? Am I really mm -hmm. doing anything mm -hmm. here? So it's really glamorized a lot. And if you, you know, even in television and what, and it's Sopranos, gosh, I don't know if you want, did you follow in treatment either, by the way, in treatment or Sopranos? Um, I watched Sopranos a long time ago. I never okay. finished the, the, I think I missed the final season, but I did yeah. watch it. Yeah. <clears throat> so you get a sense of obviously mm -hmm. kind of how they portrayed, mm -hmm. which, you know, and interestingly, so if you watch in treatment, I don't know if, it, if you have HBO on demand or max or something, I highly encourage this. I actually in treatment. In okay. Treatment. I'm going to write that down, write it down. Okay. I took one. So he goes through a bunch of, I can't remember the lead actor's name, but he goes through a bunch of um, stories. So the whole crux of the show is that, you know, he has his own personal life that's parallel, but he goes through, you know, these different client you know, stories every week and they overlap and some don't and whatever. There's a lot of boundary stuff going on there, but he, you know, practices in this really interesting way. And, you know, it's, I did actually assign one season of that to my students. I wanted them to actually follow one of the characters because it was an older white man who had been through you know, a, a couple, I don't know, a couple wars, I want to say, but, and then became, you know, very wealthy, started his own business, et cetera. And then he ends up attempting suicide. And I was trying to make the point that just the way somebody looks when they come into your therapy office has, mm. does not mean that the way they present is 
a what the presenting issue is because most of the time it's deeper than whatever's there on the surface Mm -hmm. but also b that because he looked so put together not to make an assumption so i was sort of kind of fighting back um with this woke stuff before i realized i was doing it let's Mm -hmm. say Mm -hmm. and by using that particular client that's what i was doing and i didn't understand even wasn't conscious I was doing it anyhow. Um, but how they portray therapy there, I think, you know, he doesn't have a very good sense of boundaries, but a sense of actually watching progression and growth. Um, you know, you don't see these dramatic shifts and you see him getting into more trouble more often than not. And to me, you know, and then he does a lot of really inappropriate things like his clinical supervisor becomes his therapist. So, you know, Mm. he's very flawed as is she. And I think in some ways I, there, you know, I relate more to that flawed component than I do to, you know, other depictions of couch therapy, where you go and lie down on the couch and just tell them your deepest dark, which is all scripted. So, you know, exactly what to, you know, I'd sit there and go, okay, what would I say if I was him? Well, there's no real meaning behind that because it's all scripted. So people Mm -hmm. have time to think and revise the line 150 million times Mm -hmm. anyhow. So, um, but you know, you, you don't, I don't think that there, that there appears to be a lot of gratitude paid Mm -hmm. to him for whatever change does happen, you know, here and there, but I think that's more likely than not the case most of the time as a therapist. Yeah. And the way that you describe that and telling your students that about the, that you're not going to hear a lot of thank yous. It seems like that process, if you're, if you're working alongside somebody and you're sort of developing a, an ongoing process of introspection and self-awareness and self-analysis, um, that is going to be, I, I think of the line from the hollow men by T.S. Eliot, not with a bang, but a whimper. Oh, yes. You know, it's just going to be like yes. this gradual. And so you might even, I, I can think of like a, um, a counselor that I worked with for a long time. Um, not a long time, I guess, but, you know, a couple of years, probably my favorite counselor that I've ever worked with myself. And I sort of tapered off seeing her and it, and I, I think I, part of the growth that was happening was attributable to my time with her. Yes. But the, it's, it's kind of, there's this irony where as you get better, you see the person less. So there is a, they might think, well, I thought we were doing so well. And then they just poof disappeared, you know? So it, it's like a counterintuitive. So it's such an excellent process. It is such an excellent point because, you know, and it goes with that idea that the goal isn't to keep them forever, right? right. It is to actually equip them or help them equip themselves to leave. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's so, that's so, you know, I'm just thinking back as at all of the um, interns and trainees I supervised and when their clients stopped coming after periods of mm-hmm. progress and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, just didn't rely on them as much. And that's so interesting because normally they you know, the initial response is what did I, what did I do wrong? How did Mm -hmm. I drive that client away? But that's such a great point because I didn't, I actually really didn't consider that until just this very moment. Really? Yeah. That's, it it is really interesting how, how that could lead to a feeling of lack of confidence in the, in the person, in the practitioner or in the the therapist. Yes. But it might be that you've actually, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it could happen even very quickly because the, who knows how much introspection that person 
really yes. need it. You know, they might have yes. realized that I can do this without somebody. I figured out. Yes. Yeah. Very true. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because, you know, th- one of the things people say, I want to go into this profession because I want to help people. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, well, okay, but it's not really what it is. I, I wouldn't say it's a helping profession. I don't know what I would call it. I, I, I would say I feel more like a guardrail or a guide rail mm-hmm. in a sense than I do, you know, maybe, maybe a companion on a journey. Some, I, I would define it in different terms than a helper or somebody who helps someone. Yeah. Um, that's really a good point too, because I've really struggled with the language around it since I, since I decided not to go through the whole process and get licensed as a counselor, I can't use the word counselor in my practice. So yes, I've been using coach because it's what we are coming to know as sort of a, a, a similar, but different practice, you know, I mean, it's similar in certain ways. I obviously yes. the talk process part is very similar but there's no diagnosis. There's no treatment. I don't claim to be you know, yes. working on mental health care. So yes. that's different, but in what do you want to call yourself? That's been a struggle to kind of conceptualize because I don't want to be a mentor. Yes. I don't feel like a coach. Yes. I don't feel like a, what are the other words, you know, like counselor is a word we all know. We kind of have a a thought for that, you know, somebody whose counsel you seek, but I don't want to be an advisor. I'm not giving advice. You know, it's, I'm not a teacher. Yes. It's just a weird, it's a weird space. I really feel like it's more like being a partner. Yes. Like a process partner. Yes. That's not really a recognized. I mean, if I put that on a business card and hand that out, people are going to be like, what the heck is that? So, you know, it's weird. It's Yes. Yeah. You have to use those kinds of words that are accessible and people understand mm-hmm. what they mean, you know, coach, for example, but in the actual process of it. And, you know, all of those books you read in, in early classes talk about the parallel process of the change within the therapist as their client is also changing. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it just even in that road. Um, and I think that's what also I think that's what also create, I mean, you know, we're, we carry a lot of our clients stuff in this kind of profession. It's, mm-hmm. it's your giving of yourself in this way. That is, um, sometimes I think, it, I think it's harder. I mean, it's harder than a normal, I mean, a regular relationship because, right. You know, there's dialogue and feedback and back and forth and conversation. And there is with a therapist too, but it is very, so much focused on that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of felt many times that there was just kind of nothing left for me at the end of the day, mm-hmm. uh, or the people I loved. I went through a lot of, you know, get, getting rid of friends and things as along the process that I had known for a long time. Cause I just could not handle kind of taking on mm. all of their stuff. It was almost easier to be. And when I worked in addiction, it was more of a counselor role. I was still a psychotherapist and mm-hmm. clinical supervisor. I still had those titles, but it's more directed treatment. That was less for me. It was less draining, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, um, just, just, I didn't feel I had to have the same amount of open space because I could just sort of point things out, but an, an actual psychotherapist model, um, mm-hmm. required a lot more from me of just needing to hold space, but also hold my own reactions, like be authentic and mm-hmm. not make 
client feel they have to take care of me because that's what we're doing doing both you know mm-hmm. you're trying to keep space and you're trying to also not mm-hmm. create a sense where the where the client client feels they have to take care of you which you know they don't want to upset you or they don't want and so it was just a lot and and then the confidential nature of it so there was a lot of just where do I how do I kind of dump myself because mm-hmm. I needed that a lot so it's like um, an, a real intensity to that focus that you have. Yeah. Yes. So you found yourself kind of maxed out after that and, and it was draining. Yeah, Yeah, I did. And, you know, I, I think back and I have some of the most profound moments with clients. I, you know, there's just, there's, there's really quite a, quite a bit. And I don't know that they'll ever, you know, those, those, their, those clients would ever remember those moments the way that I did, Mm -hmm. but those were very nurturing and very, you know, warming for my soul. Um, and so that, but I think that in general, I felt less effective than effective. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I, again, it may just be my own imposter syndrome situation, but I think in general, humans are very unpredictable and it doesn't matter how predictable you might be in a routine, you know, day after day. I mean, it's like the therapy office one day they drop a bomb you're not prepared for, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or there's a comment made that, you know, you, you're, you know, you weren't expecting or, or a story or, or something along those lines anyhow. Mm-hmm. But, um, so you're managing your feelings in the room, you're managing holding that space, you're managing your own reactions and you're providing compassion and you're providing empathy and to, you know, I know therapists that are seeing eight clients a day, five days a week. And it's Mm -hmm. just, I don't know how that's possible considering the amount that I personally felt I gave to it, Mm -hmm. um, or, or needed to, to, to open the space for, and no one's in the room with me, but the, but the client, and this is why all this woke crap, it kind of goes back to that. It detracts from the most important parts of what is happening in that room. Mm-hmm. And it's not fighting in for, and it's not act, you know, advocate. it's funny because my co-host, um, for the CTA podcast. So, you know, he was about to do an interview and, and, you know, he, we were sort of ch- chatting about his podcast. And I said to him, you know, and, and I was surprised that this came out of my mouth. Um, mm-hmm. well, we were doing this on the, on the text, but, but it came out where I said, you know what, though, I feel that I have become an activist. I, I, I now feel in the position I am mm-hmm. that I am advocating for the authenticity of this profession to mm-hmm. remain intact and to remain and hold its integrity. So actually I have become an activist and mm-hmm. that's the very thing I didn't want going into the, the field, but now I am, and I'm in a position where that is my way of doing something about it is to actually be an advocate mm-hmm. and be an activist. It's ironic. The irony, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize it until he and I were sort of having this, you know, chat about his upcoming interview that he was doing for something else. And mm-hmm. I said, gosh, in a sense, I said, this seems very political focused. And I said, but wait a minute though, it has become political focused. Mm-hmm. And in our effort to reground, you know, and come back to our roots, you know, as clinicians mm-hmm. and what the profession is, this is why I, I, I just, I just really loathed the woke stuff so much because for me as a clinician, we are the tool, right? Mm-hmm. Us and who we are and everything we are that we bring in, we're the tool. It is us. And when we're spending all of this 
time on these political and socio, you know, whatever issues that are happening, we're detracting from what the richness is and, and we need all we can get. This mm. is tough work. We need all we can get in terms of learning how to balance and to hold that space and to be 100% present every single time, mm -hmm. way more than we need to be thinking about or discussing marginalized and disenfranchised and advocacy. I don't want them spending their extra hours on advocacy, these interns. I want them spending their extra hours on uh, replenishing their spirit and their soul mm -hmm. and, you know, finding some way to ground themselves and to breathe and to get in touch with their own intuition. There, there is no profession more connected to intuition than therapy. Mm -hmm. This is why you can have a bag full of tricks and interventions you've learned from a book. That's wonderful, but it means absolutely nothing in the room. If at that very moment, that is not what is needed. And how do you know what's needed? Intuitively speaking, mm -hmm. you, you mm -hmm. respond from this place that's within you on some deeper level. You know, it's not just reading body language, but it's feeling someone's soul. It's feeling that energy. It's just the, there's an empath kind of quality to it. And we need to be focused on developing that and, mm -hmm. and recharging. So all of it, you know, in mm -hmm. general, so then here I am now out there becoming sort of an advocate for what we were supposed to be doing in therapy when the profession itself never lended itself to have this kind of out outcome. It never was supposed to be about that. Mm -hmm. So now we have to advocate and fight back, you know, the, the word mm -hmm. fight again, but this political yeah. Yeah, you know, it is. It's a really strange displacement of what yes. the core of the the work is supposed to be. And as you're, you know, you're talking about how um, this this advocacy activist role sort of started to supplant the work that the students needed to yes. do in order to become more humble and more loving yes. and more more like in touch with their own intuition and their own self. I feel like the best things that I learned when I when I was in graduate school, in terms of working with clients were about learning to be a better listener and learning to give less advice, really, honestly, you know, I mean, I, I thought that was, that was kind of counterintuitive to me at first. I thought what we're supposed to, you know, but no, it's like, sit on your hands and hold your tongue and let the person talk and, and try not to be too directive when you're speaking to people. And I felt like that was probably the gem, the, yes. the biggest gem of the whole process was learning how to sit with somebody without feeling like I needed to take any kind of ownership over their own, over whatever was going on with them. Yes. And anyway, you know, um, and I, I'm interested because you've mentioned imposter syndrome a couple of times, and I think that's such a fascinating phenomenon. Yes. And what love to kind of explore that a little bit with you. And when I, when I think of imposter syndrome, it's like, this, I'm not what I'm saying I am, or I'm not what you think I should be or whatever. It's this like self-doubt, but it, it, um, it requires a concept, like a schema that you're trying to yes. live up to. And yes. so, uh, and I think this kind of goes hand in hand with us, with a lack of confidence that people have in say the scenarios that we've discussed, where you are 
you're hearing things that don't sound right to you, but you're struggling to stand up for, yes. you're, you're, st- you're struggling to sort of say no to the people who are imposing a, you know, an ideology or a, a, a way of thinking because you don't want to be, you don't want to look stupid. You don't want to be wrong. You don't want to be cast aside or cast out or, or whatever. So that's kind of, that's kind of an imposter syndrome analog, really yes. that like lack of confidence in self. Yes. And I feel like that's, yeah, this is going to go all over the place. No, <laughs> so, keep going. This like, is great. Um, one of the things that I noticed that I didn't like in the graduate program was how mechanized things were becoming. And this is, you know, when you talk about in, intuition being important, we were being trained to kind of set that aside completely in favor of a more mechanized zeros and ones, you know, like we're going to, you, you know, here, we're going to go down this checklist about each client and, you know, you're doing the, um, I don't know, just the, the MSC, the mental statics. Yes. Exam, and it's by this really strict, like yes. it has to be empirical and, you know, there's not as much and for insurance billing and yes. making smart goals and yes. yada, yada, yada. It's very, it's like a, a robot could do this job or you could bring in an 18 year old kid and just put them in the position and just, they'll just do this job, you know? So there, yes. it's like a casting aside of the intuition. Yes. Uh, where am I going with this? Because it's all kind of tied. I feel like these three things tie together the lack of confidence in one's own values or, or critical thinking judgment, the lack yes. of lack of sense of belongings, which, which leads to imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough. Yes. And I mean, yeah. So what do you think? I mean, I think, you know, I think that's part of the problem is <clears throat> that whole structure of the smart goals, which, you know, for people that are in the field, it's, it's just, a, they're measurable goals. It, I forgot what the an, uh, acronym stands for, but you know, it's, it's measurable symptoms that specific time specific. bound measurable, there you go. And action and perfect. Yeah. I don't Yes. Yeah. Specific. That was the S yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Perfect. Yes. <clears throat> so I think on the one hand, there's a lot of focus on that. And so when you go into a room and you're focused on your smart goals and you've been told, you know, these are your, you know, interventions that you have in your back pocket, and this is what you're going to use. And you walk in there and you do, and it doesn't work out, or you walk in there and the client's like looking at you like, what, you know, this is not what I'm here to talk about. And it doesn't work out or it doesn't. I mean, I think there's some kind of when your mind and forget the client, even your mind as a therapist mm-hmm. is going a hundred miles a minute, you know, especially at the beginning, you know, when you're first learning to see client, it's a hundred miles a minute. Am I remembering uh, how to sit? Am I remembering eye contact? Am I remembering how to breathe and ground myself? If I feel a little bit destabilized in the room and I don't know mm-hmm. what to do, you know, I had a client once I, I had experience at this time. So it wasn't a huge, you know, deal for me, but you know, she got up from where she was sitting and she went and crawled into a corner and the fetal Mm. position started sobbing and screaming and sort of reliving this, Mm. you know, traumatic incident. Uh, She'd been assaulted multiple times. Mm. It's a whole long, sad story. And, you know, I knew kind of how to manage that because it was, uh, I had had some experience already, but thinking about that from a very, you know, from the place of somebody who's really new, I would have sat there and thought, okay, wait a minute. I came in here. We were supposed to do this activity today. I was supposed to do this, whatever, you know, 
thing with her and, and to achieve this goal. And what do I do now? And that's where the intuition kicks in. Mm-hmm. It's that you don't need all of that in order to make a connection with somebody. But I think partly, you know, you have a couple things happening. You have the insurance part of this mm-hmm. where you need to document insurance will only pay for things that are curable. So you have to put and subscribe these kinds of interventions to which then this person's ailments are cured. And in this case, the ailments are in their mental health, right? Mm-hmm. We know that's not possible. We, I, I, that, that'd be one. If, if there was a cure to depression or in any mental health condition, we wouldn't have a job. I used to always say this. So it isn't curable. It's treatable, you know, it's mm-hmm. manageable. But I think that when you're sitting there with all of that, so you're contending with your, the insurance in the way that the industry itself has, be, has, mo- has monetized itself in this fashion. So now people are going to therapists who only accept insurance because they want to pay the $20 copay, not $150 or $200 or whatever it is per hour. Mm-hmm. You have therapists, there, if they're willing to do that and to bill insurance, that means that it's extra paperwork for them and they accept less money. So if they're accepting less money, plus there's more paperwork, you're going to get more of this sort of turned out like assembly line therapy, you know, that Mm -hmm. is going to be more boxed in and is going to, first of all, you don't have the time um, as a therapist uh, to really, you know, if, if you're seeing eight clients a day because you're accepting insurance. There's no time for you to breathe or do anything. You're literally one to the next to the next. And I watched it happen. I was part of a group practice for some time. And I watched many of my colleagues taking on 30 clients, 40 clients, because they needed to take more on Mm -hmm. because the insurance didn't pay enough, Mm -hmm. had a lot of paperwork to do, but that meant, you know, that they needed to fill in what they weren't going to earn. And they had to do this extra paperwork. So now we're like doubling the work. Anyhow, none mm-hmm. of it makes any sense, but that's mm-hmm. how it is. And I don't, I don't fault a client for wanting to use insurance. It's expensive therapy. Mm-hmm. And if insurance mm-hmm. will pay great, but insurance wants you to be able to prove that there's been a cer- certain significance in, in improvement by month three. So it's like 12 weeks at a time. You fill out these URs, these, you know, utilization reviews, and you review whether or not your client is moved forward or not, because you want to say they've moved forward enough, but not too much. They move forward enough to justify continuing to go. Mm-hmm. But if they move forward so much, then it just justifies they don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. There was a constant battle. And this is especially significant in inpatient treatment, inpatient, mm-hmm. intensive, you know, outpatient, partial hospitalization, all of those who primarily use insurance. So there's that kind of way of thinking and how we apply that to a profession that has no, that's very gray. As I always Mm -hmm. say, it's so blurry, right? It just kind of moves and you have to be able to adapt. I mean, I just kind of liken it to sort of this river that's flowing Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's going to be currents in the water and sometimes not it sits, but you have to be able to bend with it. So these are very competing issues Mm -hmm. and very competing, you know, goals or, or principles, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that that leads, I think that that sets you up to also have that imposter syndrome situation, because when you look at that checklist at the end of the day, and you can't mark off that this person is feeling depressed three times a day, instead of 10 times a day, Mm -hmm. that in and of itself, I think creates a, what are we doing wrong now? I need to like 
I'm not giving them enough. We're not fixing it. We're not, mm-hmm. I need to help them fix We've got to, so we can move on to the next person. And that's what it's somewhat become on the other side of that without mm-hmm. all of that structure. And with you going in on the basic models, I think, or, you know, principles of therapy, there's this feeling of, well, I don't know if I'm seeing any progress. And if I don't see any, pro- like, what am I doing in the room? I feel like all I'm doing in the room is I'm being with them. I'm not doing anything. I'm not giving anything. I'm not. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think on both sides of that coin, I don't know. I don't know where I went with that either. No, and I don't know if there's a straight line here. <laughs> no, it's all really, I mean, it's fleshing out this whole concept and it kind of goes back to the, you know, taking ownership of the other person's problems when you're being forced to be yes. accountable for that in That's that really, brilliant. really rigid way. Yes. I mean, cause yes. you, it, it's kind of both because you yes. are there they wouldn't come yes. see you if they didn't think it would be helpful to them to see you. Yes. That's but right. Also it's not your life. And so it's yes. not your choice, what they do with anything that they, yes. maybe all they need is somebody to listen. Yes. You know, usually and that's it. Usually yeah. that's most of the time. That's the case. Listen and... with attention and listen with genuine yes. interest and genuinely see yes. what's going on, but still just listen. Yes. And I, you know, I had a client who I was seeing for maybe 10 months or so very long time. Um, who we would talk about nothing. I mean, every week it was just, it was nothing. It was about time that this person spent, you know, in the military years and years and years ago. And I mean, I was fully licensed and, you know, professor and, you know, how much more knowledge could I have gained? I mean, there's always more to learn, but, uh, you know, I wasn't, you know, that green and Mm -hmm. I didn't know what we were doing either. I mean, it was just sort of going into a direction where I felt, okay, I'm not doing enough again. Here we go with the imposter syndrome. I'm not doing enough. I'm not Mm -hmm. helping. I'm not, you know, and it would give me all sorts of anxiety and, and all sorts of, you know, you know, for somebody who tends to be a perfectionist such as myself this is the exact wrong profession for me because <laughs> it does not come with anything measurable to be able to say I succeeded or I didn't mm-hmm. uh however mm-hmm. um and it's not about me anyway right so anyway but just one day um this client just dropped this major bomb on this absolutely horrendous amount of abuse of mm-hmm. abuse that they had experienced. I, and I was just in shock. I mean, my, mm. I, you know, my, my jaw didn't drop. I've, I've gotten used to kind of absorbing the, sh- the shock and not, you know, yeah. that kind of like you're freaking yeah. me out, but just being able to, to sit with it. And I used that story, you know, very, um, generally as a composite, uh, for case studies and things for my classroom, because it just kind of demonstrated Hey, you know, just sitting and being with that person and creating without pushing too hard, mm-hmm. without trying to, you know, is enough to get them to trust you. However, your insurance doesn't give you nine months or 10 months or 12 months to do this. Right. It doesn't give. So, you know, here we come with this, this, this answer to the insurance problem or the money problem. And that's to measure the goals. If that's the case, this person failed in every single area of mm-hmm. what those measurable goals would be. Mm. But at the end of the day, this person shared things with me that had never been shared before. And I do believe that the catharsis in that 
in and of itself was quite, was quite healing. And, Mm -hmm. um, I went on a medical leave after that for other reasons. And this person wanted to wait until I returned and just time kind of got away and I I just couldn't come back. And, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I thought, I think about that person a lot still. So I know something happened there. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. just wasn't apparent day after day. It wasn't apparent with these goals. And again, that kind of the tapping into the intuition, is this the moment to try to, to try to push a bit or to try to not push the word, maybe gently challenge mm-hmm. is, you know, can I, is this the moment to gently challenge or to make an observation? Is this person ready to hear that? Well, if I'm thinking about all my smart goals and I'm thinking about all the different things mm-hmm. I have to do to bill insurance, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. about you know, okay. Okay. How many times did you do this today? And that's part of what those assessments are. Is you ask every session, how many times they felt anxious and how many times they felt depressed and how many times they, you know, were crying uncontrollably that brought me away from my intuition. And my intuition was my biggest tool in the room. It was just mm-hmm. me and everything mm-hmm. I am, but that intuition would guide and I'd feel it in my belly. And I tried to explain mm-hmm. this phenomenon to my, to my students. You can feel it. There's a feeling that comes over you. Mm-hmm. If you're in touch with that, where you know, whether to, to, to gently prod or to stay, stay back or to prod or stay back or to sit with them while they're sobbing and just not say a word or saying something in this moment right now, what might that do to create, you know, a light bulb for them? That is intuition. No one can teach you this. Mm -hmm. No one can teach you this. So all this infiltration from the indoctrination to the insurance companies, to the structure of the, we just need to fix it and move on. And now we see what it back in my day, a full caseload of a full-time therapist whose license was no more than 20 clients. It was 15 to 20 maximum. Why? Because we needed that extra time to be able to regroup and to balance and to center and to, to get our own energy back. Mm -hmm. We take on a lot of their stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would say the profession outside of just indoctrination has been actually unraveling in a lot of ways for many Mm -hmm. years. You know, know. When you're talking about that, one of the things that occurs to me is like, you're talking about this, um, trying to pay attention to all these, I don't want to say extraneous, but like less than central, uh, sort of precepts and expectations of self. Yes. Um, you, that, I mean, that kind of, that is being an imposter in a way. I mean, you're trying to be something that you are not inherently, you know, that you're not being yourself when you're doing that. So it's like, no wonder one of the things I came to dislike in the, when I was in graduate school was the word, uh, this is going to be unpopular with a lot of therapists and counselors, but the word clinician, I became, I I started to dislike that word because I thought I don't want to be working with people in a clinical way. I'm, I'm discovering this as I'm working, as I'm learning more and as I'm getting a little bit of experience and I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. I don't want to see this in a clinical light. Mm -hmm. I don't, there's a, there's room for that in the world. There's people who need that and there's people who will benefit from that. And yes, and there's a reason that exists, but that's not the kind of work that I want to bring to the population that yes. I want to work with. Yes. And so it's that really mechanized, yes, sort of overly, overly like rigid, like you're talking about almost being in the state of flow when you're 
describing yes. that intuitive t- tapping into yes. something that's it's more interpersonal it's more that's like right. yeah this is it, like a real genuine authentic yes. organic process at this point yes. when you're in that flow state yes yeah. and it's bigger than me and i mean i literally would feel i could feel chills in my body even talking about it now for some mm. reason i just got a chill mm-hmm. but i could feel chills there's something about that alignment Mm-hmm. you know, with this other person. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because what I want to say about this, because if you watch my video from fair, mm-hmm. you know, I talked about my issue with the fact that we were not allowed to use certain words anymore, or that people were, you know, um, normalizing pathological behavior. And that bothered me. Mm-hmm. So I want to make a really clear distinction between this. And the distinction here for me is that if you are learning to go into this profession and you are learning about, you know, human behavior and what is considered, you know, natural or typical and what is considered pathological, first of all, it's a hard line to draw because everything exists on a continuum. I mean, life is a continuum. So you're kind of looking at a couple things. You're looking at like how it interferes with the person's ability to live the life that they want or to have healthy relationships or to be able to hold down a job or whatever it is. First of all, what are their values? Do they value working? Do they value holding down a job? Do they that? So we're starting with that. Okay. Even, even more so. Okay. Now let's just say they do and that they want to, you know, have better relationships. Okay. So does what's happening for them interfere with their ability to do that? So that to me is a crucial you need to have the understanding. You need to have those crucial understandings of what those things mean, because it informs how treatment goes. And I'm going to give you an example of a personal client that I had, who I had seen in a dual diagnosis setting. And I saw her in my private practice. Um, she presented very well, but there were some crucial questions I didn't ask her. And it's because I had already known her for a while, having worked mm-hmm. with her inpatient that I didn't ask her these other questions. And, you know, she probably would have not been truthful. Uh, she always came put together and looked great. And, and, but there are a couple things that I, I noticed and I was concerned about, and I didn't say anything. And that's something I regret because I mm-hmm. I've always been a, a big proponent of learning from my mistakes as well as my successes. And mm-hmm. that's why I've always presented both of those when I used to teach and I didn't ask about these things, but something I knew was maybe not right. And it was a little bit off. And anyway, there were, so, but with her, it was so free, you know, and there was so much of this just kind of flow going on. And because of that though, I, 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 I missed some important things that were going on. Turned out that she had a psychotic episode Mm -hmm. and I get a phone call and she's having this experience and it's, it's, she has to go to the hospital. Anyway, the police are involved. It's a whole thing Mm, in the hospital mm. and whatnot. Okay. And I sat there and went, okay, let me debrief with some of my colleagues about this because I used to do peer, you know, consult groups too, where we would just sit around and talk about our clients, even though we're licensed, we want to get some feedback. And, and I said, okay, what went wrong? That was a scenario where I went too much to that extreme. And Mm. I didn't actually sit there and say, okay, I'm dealing with somebody who has diagnosed severe mental health issues they were inpatient for mm-hmm. now I'm not, you know, so now I need to c- kind of be aware of that. And because I almost slipped so much into mm-hmm. the flow, mm-hmm. uh, I got caught under it and I didn't see, and the things I did see, I just kind of 
you know, said, I'm not going to judge it. And I Mm -hmm. moved forward. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she, she ended up, I think being okay. Anyhow, I, you know, I don't want to give many details, but I missed it. So when I was doing my fair video and when I was talking about some of this stuff in my video, Mm -hmm. it wasn't so much about wanting to pathologize human life or behavior or pathologize everybody. Like mm-hmm. I said, everybody, we live on a continuum. I mean, I, I'm sure I have borderline personality traits, but so does everybody and narcissistic mm-hmm. ones. And so does everybody. It's what mm-hmm. allows us sometimes to, you know, set goals, right. Or mm-hmm. to get up and want to take a shower and put on some makeup, right. There's a bit of that, that mm-hmm. is important in being accepted. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we do carry some of that, but again, to what extent does it impact your ability to live life and to make good decisions for yourself and to follow a life that you have set out for yourself that aligns with your values as a human. So it's this extreme thinking that is so destructive Mm -hmm. on the one hand, you know, completely pathologizing everybody and coming in with this sort of like prescribed Mm -hmm. art goal. And then on the other hand, everybody's free to be me mm-hmm. and you're seeing people that are hospitalized. This woman needed to go back to the hospital. That's mm-hmm. what I'm getting at. She needed different kind of treatment than what we were doing. She mm-hmm. needed to go back. Mm-hmm. And because I was flowing too much, mm-hmm. I missed it. You, you feel like you failed to recognize that because Big you were time. unbalanced in that, in that like correct. assessment. Correct. Area. So correct. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what I, that, that, not So in the video, that's sort of the, what I was talking about mm-hmm. was the fact that, you know, you have to be able to have, because that changed the direction of the kind of treatment she needed. Mm-hmm. But I think this balance part is part of the intuition though. The mm-hmm. balance part, you know, the flowing mm-hmm. is so that feeling in your stomach that mm-hmm. knots up, that tells you something isn't right here. And as uncomfortable as I am, Mm-hmm. I have to say something at, you know, at, at the possibility of her being mad at me or mm-hmm. saying, Oh my gosh, Christine and storming who knows? Mm-hmm. And I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. so I, you know, again, it's not my fault per se, but I missed it. And it was a mistake and mm-hmm. it was an error. And I am okay talking about errors because that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. I don't sit there and pontificate as some of these other professors did about how brilliant I am. I'm not brilliant. <laughs> I'm another person. Here's my experience. I can teach you some things. Mm-hmm. And I can teach you, I think what the core values, you know, are and what, you know, and that doesn't downplay, you know, I mean, I have a pretty outstanding evaluation, so I'm not, I'm not going to take that away from myself. I downloaded them before I left the school to read them and remind myself every now and again, you know? So anyhow, having said yeah. that, yeah. I was approached at a restaurant a couple of weeks ago and someone came to the pain and said, Oh my God, what's happened to Antioch? It's gone off the deep end. And I said, I don't know. It's off. It's not, it's not only off the deep end, it's exploded into a million <laughs> off the cliff. Yeah. It was, you know, it was really because of you, I decided to continue to get licensed and I just did. And I was really happy to hear Aww. that. And she gave me a big wow. hug. It was sweet. And so I thought, okay, you know, those are the kind of the, the, the moments, but I think a lot of it is just, I, I was just an accessible person to them anyhow. So having said that, yeah, that, that's where I think that the line is and what is going to help you figure out the pathology part or the, Hey, you know what? All of us have crap going on and it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's that intuition, it's knowledge mm-hmm. and it's learned knowledge and it's experience and mm-hmm. it's intuition. So I think these three things together mm-hmm. have to be somehow into integrated or, mm-hmm. or, 
anyway, so I'm kind of going on long. No, about that's, that, but I think that's where I wanted to get. I to. think that's really great. The three things that's like the trifecta it's knowledge, it's yes. experience, and it's, it's intuition. Yes. And it's yes. like the, at the end of the day, the intuition is almost, almost becomes the the vehicle that takes in those other two and incorporates them. Yeah. Bingo. That's exactly what I wanted to get at. That's exactly right. I mean, from my, what I was trying to say. Yeah. And it's a good illustration. And your story also, that anecdote really um, highlights again, this, the same theme that keeps repeating over and over in everything. Yes. The the need to avoid polarity and to have some kind of balance. Yes. You know, we need to be able to find, uh, you know, it's it's like the yin yang. It's, it's, I feel like the, the mechanized, the mechanized, um, medicalized process that counselors are, are being encouraged to adopt is too much order, but then if it's full intuitive and there's no training at all, that's too much chaos. And so it's like, yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm. That's Mm. exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's that intuition part that kind of guides which direction or sort of allows you to, to know where to move. And that that's where in the midst of your studies and seeing clients as a student, that extra time should not be on advocacy. That extra time (laughs) needs to be on fine tuning or understanding when my body starts to, you know, do this, what, what's happening for me, Mm -hmm. you know, and I used to do some of those exercises when I taught process one, you know, which is a process class is for them to just recognize what's happening in their body. Just listen, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, make note of that. And at what point did they feel that way and kind of look at what was happening for them. Um, and that was, that sounds so valuable because yes. you're teaching them to trust themselves better yes. and to yes. understand themselves, which is the yes. way that they're going to understand themselves with their clients. And that's going to be the way that they understand their client. And that's going to be how they help their client to understand themselves. And it's yes. this sort of beautiful ripple effect versus yes. this Yes. crazy woke training, which is teaching yes. you to not understand yourself and to doubt yourself yes. and to question yes. your own critical thinking. And if, yes. Yeah. yeah it's, all of that. I love all of the, that. the sound of that process class. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it really was, it, it was a good group. I, and I only taught it the one time, but you know, I, I, you know, I taught it how I, you know, I went back and read kind of one of the evals from when I was a student and my process teacher said, um, that, you know, I, I had good, you know, I asked good questions I have, but that he could visibly see the anxiety in my body. Mm. He was observing me. So of course mm-hmm. it was anxious, but mm-hmm. that stuck, stuck with me that, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, your client could see, I mean, it, it's going to show up. Mm-hmm. That's the piece where I want you to be aware of those things and what's happening for you, because that's hopefully going to help the more you can understand that, the more that you can work with it. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's telling you to not be anxious or, or just to, you know, it, you know, to, to let that go. And it, no, that's not realistic, but where is the anxiety coming from? And what can you do with it? And the chapter for the CTA book, they finally got my copies in the mail. I'm very thrilled about that. Um, but the chapter in the book that I wrote about part, part of it was about classically trained when I was class, I was classically trained at Antioch prior to all of this years and years ago, mm-hmm. the focus did tend to lie more on that than it did on any of these other social justice, you know, kinds of things. It was on the awareness of self. how you were showing up and self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The awareness of self and how you were showing up in the room. There was a lot more focus on that than there was on 
you know, these mm-hmm. other things. And mm-hmm. that was more valuable information mm-hmm. than anything else, um, that I could have read in a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take a moment and check in with the chat? Yeah, sure. All right. Let's see. Seems like it's been pretty active. Um, <laughs> Friar Pestle says, hello, friends. Hello. <laughs> And also says the army psychologist was definitely a very put together and all knowing character in the TV show MASH. Ah, you ever watch that? Interesting. When I was a child, yeah. I did not understand the bigger themes. I was too young. I'd have to go back and, and watch it now. But yeah. Winstona Smith. What a name. Mm. I like that. I like yes. that play. If not you, then who? If not now, then when? Mm-hmm. And then Dirty Sanchez, which it's a hard name to say, but that's very amusing. <laughs> Best wishes to the channel. Thank you very much. Ah, oh, very sweet. Uh, CNY photo video says, hello. Hello. Um, Winstona Smith, forget the soulless wokes. Woke Marxists serve yes. soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, House of bad influence. I've lost patience with talking to people now. I don't care at this point. Mm, sorry to hear that. That's yes. kind of a cynical place to end up. Yes. I, I can understand the pessimism, but... Absolutely. Not a good feeling. No. Uh, CNY photo video says that's so true. Intuition plays a huge role in any dynamic, whether in the group or individually. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, House of bad influence. I've just talked to two people on the verge of suicide right now in the last two days. Brutal. Uh, It's really sad. People are feeling pretty hopeless there. Yes. Very, very difficult. And again, what we need in those moments, right. Just for ourselves, like who's going to hold us while we're holding others, mm-hmm. social justice, critical yeah. social justice, wokeism, you know, there, there's no room for that in this yeah. kind of work. That's so nuanced and delicate and precious and meaningful and profound, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's true. I heard somebody say, maybe it was something I read on Twitter the other day, like, do, do, um, the social justice people, do they seem caring? Do you? No. And I thought, gosh, no. Isn't that interesting? Angry. Uh huh. Angry. They're just angry. Mm, let's see. Uh, Fuzz Fork Eight. Fuzz T Fork Eight. That's a funny name. Hmm. Impositors. Folks who pretend to be a Christian and their actions say otherwise. Mm. Yeah. Known um, a few people like that too. Yeah. And then I'm just going to sort of skip down here. Just Let's see. Fire pestle. So perhaps we need a more humane model of authority, one that recognizes fallibility. Oh, I definitely think so. I think 100%. We've had, we have too much reliance on experts. I, I believe that. I think we have, uh, because they're all just people, you know, they're all just people and they all, you know, we're going to hit it. We're going to win some, lose some, whatever. And sometimes we're going to be right. And sometimes we're going to be wrong. And then there's some pretty funny people in the chat making puns. That's pretty cute. Um, (laughs) CNY photo video says I've definitely met many intellectuals over the years that had very little wisdom. Intellectuals. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Versus wisdom or smart versus wise. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wisdom. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's true. And that's that that. incorporation of experience and knowledge into. Yes the the intuitive yes. process yes and you need to be able to say you are wrong mm-hmm. house of bad influence says i've always loved history going down rabbit holes for research is a hobby for us accuracy is paramount that's why i think most of us have been on top of this nonsense from the beginning 
Yep. And history repeats. Jay says, oh, glad to catch this conversation. Well, we're glad to have you here, Jay. Thank you. <laughs> Friar Pestle, according to the DSM, normal is a culture is culture bound anyway. So really the institution as it stands is relative, even though it masquerades yes. as absolute. This is a really good, this, I kind of wanted to, to bring yes. up something about this. So one, th- I, and I don't know how I feel about this because it's really a big thought that's, anyway, so we have, this sort of postmodern deconstruction of everything to the point where there's no morality there's no there's not an objective morality and and as that continues it's like when i one of the things i noticed for instance when i was studying human sexuality in graduate school it's really everything goes everything it's like the doors are wide open it's very it's like kink positive and yes it's porn positive and sex work positive and all the things and so I thought about that and I don't have an answer in my mind about this I but at the end of the day if this continues then what are you seeing anybody for it's all affirmation therapy everything that you go to therapy for is just for affirmation of because yes. it's all comes down to this individual, yes. um, not even morality, but just choice, every single thing. So what are we is, and where do we draw that line? Where do we put, put that pin? What is the cultural, you know, you know and as, as we get more diverse yes, and, and not, and yes. I don't mean that in like this positive way. I mean, this, in this like woke yes. way, this um, postmodern way. It it's just a tearing down of everything to the point where there is no yes culture. There is no yes boundary. So what do you think about that? Because I mean, I don't I've even know what before, I think about it. I've said before, you know, and this might be a controversial statement, but I've said before that there the breakdown of the nuclear family is a hugely problematic issue in our world. Not talking about Man and women with 2.5 children. That's not my the structure I'm talking about. I'm talking about mm-hmm. a structure where you have children being raised by parents, mm-hmm. you know, who have a you know created value system in their home and who expect, you know, there's expectations there. Mm-hmm. And there's also love there. And there's also space to fall down and make a mistake and still be loved. And there are consequences and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. my structure of nuclear family has nothing to do with all of that extra stuff, but more about the construct of how we grow up. And I've said this before, because that to me is the first place in which any kind of moral compass becomes developed. Mm -hmm. I mean, why kids don't go and murder, you know, at the age of six, it may not necessarily be because it's morally wrong, but because they know there's a consequence, Mm -hmm. but as they move forward in life, how do they develop a moral compass? How do they Mm -hmm. develop a moral sense of, well, if I could kill and get away with it, would I do it versus I could kill and get away with it, but I won't because I don't think it's morally right. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole portion of that values. And if you look at Eric Erickson's work, right, who's mm-hmm. sort of the, you know, quintessential child adolescent development talks about these different stages. And I don't, re- I'm not going to mm-hmm. recall them all right now because that's not my area of expertise. But um, the idea there was that when you switch from that place of not doing something bad because it's just not nice to mm-hmm. do it versus Mm -hmm. I want to avoid a bad consequence is when you've actually started to sort of develop, you know, a sense of integrity and a Mm -hmm. sense of groundedness in who you are. That to me is 
the breakdown of a structure of a family, in my opinion, um, where you are first going to be introduced to these ideas and you're going to watch the adults around you and what they do and say, um, when that's broken and that's completely devalued or completely in, in, in some way, you know, just dismissed you know where, where where what is our role in teaching these kids then what is our role as adults mm-hmm. it's not going to be in, because we leave it up to the schools we have the social emotional learning which is the disaster that we're seeing right now that's mm-hmm. letting your kids be raised by the school and that's that right there where all of this feelings and all this kind of stuff gets included and in, incorporated into curriculum. We're not really supposed to be making decisions based on that, but on rational fact. And that's part of what school is about is helping you to define that. This mm-hmm. other piece of it, um, in my opinion, you know, completely taints the entire reason that they're at school. So then everything becomes about being a trigger and trigger <laughs> warnings. And you can't say this in the social critical, ju- critical social justice is too porous and it's too rigid. It's both extremes. It's too rigid in that if you don't believe in it, you are, you know, a white supremacist or you are a misogynist. It is too uh, porous in the sense that anything goes. And so all of it is okay. And so trigger warnings. And if you're feeling uncomfortable, it's all okay. So you have these two extremes of these boundaries that are completely misplaced. And when you don't have that going on in your home or you don't have that going on, that's been taken away mm-hmm. from the conversation or that parents need to come down to their kids level. That doesn't work. The only mm-hmm. way we work is in a hierarchical society in a sense mm-hmm. of the parents are at the control top, you know, as the sort of the authority pieces. So that the kids feel a sense of containment and a sense of being taken care of. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of that that is problematic to where mm-hmm. now you have anything goes because there isn't a moral fabric anymore. And some of those decisions about watching porn or about whatever fetishes are not for a child who has not developed the, in the psychological integrity, savvy and sophistication to actually understand or be able to make those kinds of decisions about what's going on in front of them or to be able to, you know, we have to titrate information. And again, Mm -hmm. it's up to the adults to do it. And I think it starts at the, with the fact that we dismantle the idea of having a, a, you know, a family home or mm-hmm. values from home are looked at this, you know, Judeo Christian values that is dismissed completely, but it's sort of the foundation upon which what psychology was developed and actually the entire country in a sense. Now, mm-hmm. again, I'm not saying that other, you know, cultures or, or, or ways of thinking or religions are, are not okay. That is not at all what I am saying, but what I'm saying is I think wokeism is the anti it's the anti Judeo Christian value set. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. whether or not you subscribe to that, I, I don't know, but people need to subscribe to something. That's the problem. You need to subscribe to something. I love how you said, and you pointed out so succinctly that the critical social justice theory is both too porous and too rigid. And you gave some really good examples of that. I think that's that that brilliantly highlights the internal contradictions and why it's so it's such a uh, it does such a number on the mind. You know? Yes. And uh, as you're talking about the family and the, the nuclear family. I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is that another thing that was promoted and certainly not looked down upon in, in any way in the uh, human sexuality 
for counselors course that I took was poly relationships and open relationships and ethical non-monogamy and these kind of things. And I, and as in coming to the, down to the root of the family, this, this ultimately distills down even further into sexual ethics and sexual morality. Yes. And, and what is the, what are the values and the limitations that a culture places on, on sexuality and yes. sexual expression? And so Gosh, I think that would be such a rich topic to explore. I have a great guest for you. Oh, really? Okay. I, I, yes. Yeah. So my co-host on the CTA podcast, Yaku Fonsale, yeah. mm-hmm. Um, So he's he's a gay man, and he he has he has broken that down brilliantly. He's really? studied a lot of this. Yes. Okay. Well, gosh, I'd love to talk with him he, he about it. Ap- yeah. 100% and he'll be yeah. happy to do it. He's good. Phenomenal. Okay. And, and it, it's from his point of view, from a gay man who's married and wants to have children. I absolutely love how he is able to very succinctly talk about this extreme polyamory set, you know, his idea, and I don't want to butcher it is that okay, that's fine. Anything goes, but you have to deal with the ramifications of that, which means you're going to have people that are going to be injured, you know, injured and fallen and broken and all of that, because Mm -hmm. whether you like it or not, there is a structure that works in humanity or in communities or in societies that lead to thriving individuals. And those pieces do not promote thriving individuals and family communities. But he says it was such, so much more detail because he's thoroughly studied it being a gay man Mm -hmm. who, you know, is sort of anti-grooming and all of that. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, dated women as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's happy to talk about this publicly because we've discussed him, but anyhow, yeah. He's a great guy to, 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 to have this conversation with. And, um, well, yeah, if you want to pass his info 100%. on to me, I'll, I'll reach out to him. Cause I think yes. that this is really, um, I have, I have a lot of, uh, I have some strong opinions, but I also have a lot of places where I'm just trying to sift through yes. and understand what I think. So I would love to continue to explore he would be that. So great for you to do that because he, he, you know, he, he opened my eyes up to a different, I had never heard anybody who was you know, gay actually, you know, or non-heterosexual, but identify with a different sexual orientation, ever break it down to me like that by saying, Mm. you know, that's fine. And that's okay. But we know historically, or we see in societies Mm -hmm. that that doesn't produce, you know, Mm -hmm. people that tend to be contented that it produces Mm -hmm. chaos and Mm -hmm. a lack of understanding what boundaries are and clarity Mm -hmm. and all of this. And, and so I, I'm yes, I will absolutely pass along his information and he'd be happy to do it. And he's okay. just so brilliant and awesome. I think needs to have that, um, you know, ha- has a good platform to, 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 I think shed some light, but those mm-hmm. are just my own thoughts about yeah. the family and the breakdown of that. And again, I'm not defining nuclear family as a man and a woman with 2.5 kids. No, I'm defining yeah. it as a structure with adults who are raising children in whatever, you know, that looks like, but that there is a boundary sense of a family Mm -hmm. and a morality, right. That we help children learn and value. And that typically leads, I think, to better social outcomes, Mm -hmm. which is why we want to get the parents involved all the time in child therapy. I mean, that's part of, you know, how that picture goes. So anyhow, yeah. Yeah. And I, I have, myself I, I have some 
some opinions about how often children are being put into therapy and what I think about that. I mean, I really think that I've been, I've had a number of people reach out to me and ask if I'll work with their kids. I have taken a couple of young clients on. I try to, I'm trying to feel that out and do the best that I can and stay engaged with the parents as well. Um, but for really young kids, I've, I've not been willing to necessarily go there because I think that the source of authority in the family, yes, if things are working properly should be the parents and you yes. don't really know me and you don't really know what kind of things that you, do you know that you want my opinions to be that intimately shared with your child or not, not just opinions, but just everything that you can impress upon somebody without even meaning to, without even wanting to, 100%. you're introducing a strange adult into the situation. Yes. And so that can be really destabilizing. And I, I don't know, that's, absolutely barely scratching the surface of barely scratching but But I think go that's a a good succinct way to sort of kind of pull together what I'm talking about in Mm -hmm. terms of the parental figure Mm -hmm. responsibility yeah and it's being done with teachers it's being done with counselors it's being done this this impressing of somebody else's um, yes yes personal morality and even if like, again, even if they're not really trying to overtly do that, the fact that you're delving into these intimate yes. spaces, and I don't even mean, I don't mean sexual when I say intimate, I mean, just no, like right. very personal, very, absolutely. you know, how do we care for each other? And so on. Yes. There's a, there's a point in life when that's best to be kept within the family if possible. Yes. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think, and you know, I'll send you his info, but okay. maybe perhaps you'll do a themed episode, um, that's about yeah. that in particular, I think would be, you know, really phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to. And thanks for, oh my gosh, thank you talking to me today. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I'm always like, gee, what are we going to talk about today? And then it just always yeah. finds so much. So thank you so much for having me. I'm always so honored and it's such a pleasure. And you know what, Leslie, I, admire what you have done. It's absolutely incredible. And you know, what you've been able to amass in such a short period of time with disseminating information and being, you know, courageous and just being out there and calling it like it is, it's, there's not a lot of people who, who, who do that. So, you know, I, thank you. That's really really nice respect and admire what you've done. And it's pretty incredible. So just, you know, for what it's worth. <laughs> well, that's but, super yeah, nice of you. With you. I've really but, been honored to be able to yes, have these great yes, discussions. Yes. It's just been, it's been fun and interesting. Absolutely. So you know, stimulating. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's my absolute pleasure to have yes. the Thank opportunity you. to talk yes. with you and same. Um, yep. Yeah. Thanks, Christine. I All right. Until really next loved time. it. All right.